Hey everybody, St. Paul Peterson here. Welcome to episode 17 of Music on the Run. I'm on a run by a busy highway over there, but a beautiful Edina Creek back here. Our next guest is guitarist Kat Dyson. She toured with Prince, Cindy Lauper, uh, Donnie Osmond, Sheila E., and so many more. She's coming right up on Music on the Run. Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and you like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donnie Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey everybody, St. Paul here, and welcome to episode 17 of Music on the Run, our fifth Zoom interview from the famous Peterson basement. My next guest has actually hung out in this basement with me and my family. She lives in LA via Montreal in Minneapolis. She was a member of Prince's New Power Generation. She's toured with Cindy Lauper, Donny Osmond, Sheila E., to name a few, and is currently in Italian superstar Zuccaro's band. She was also named in Guitar Player Magazine as one of the 50 sensational female guitarists. Please welcome my California sister, Kath Dyson. I almost called you Kathleen. That's why it's on oh, like a list. Oh, that's, that's, that's your in trouble name. That's uh, what I see. my father would call me. <laughs> Kathleen! Kathleen! <laughs> no, I, that's why it sounded like I didn't know what I was, who I was introducing there. But I, I, I rewound, I rewound, and we, we're all good now. How, oh, how are you, my dear? Thank you for joining oh, us. Oh, I am wishing I was in that Peterson basement right now, man. You Come know, on. You remember so this. I mean, this is being there with the family and mama and everybody and, you know, being too shy to play because you guys are just it's like you're between your family and the Wooten's family. I have hung out in some basements and garages where there was just <laughs> more music than my heart could even handle. And I just kind of oh. had to stand there like a fly on the wall and say, I'm here. <laughs> but I think you were here for multiple holidays yeah, i believe yeah, yeah a couple of times yeah yeah and we had yeah. uh, i think you invited renato over and uh Rhonda smith yeah we yeah we've yeah, yeah we were all hanging here in in the yeah. basement uh, eating food playing music and and having fun where where are you now yeah during this whole well COVID right thing? now i'm i'm in la i'm here in the valley you know uh you know doing what i've been doing actually for more than like five or six years which is you know, doing tracks, you know, uh, digitally and, and recording and, and doing Skype lessons and all that. I, I kind of started doing this a few years before all this happened. So it wasn't a huge transition for me because I'm kind of set up for it because, you know, I have uh, clients in Canada, clients in Europe, uh, uh, different time zones. So I kind of jumped on that um, wave of technology early on. So it's not like, Oh, this is the new norm. It's a crazy thing. Now, you know, I have a lot of friends, in a lot of places. So when we want to play, we just, you know, the days of Skype. I've been doing it since Skype was started. So 
Right. Wow. I'm one of the one of the Skype dinosaurs. Yeah, you're you're way ahead of the curve. So you've been. This is all hat to you. Oh, so no, not I much still, has changed. I feel like a dinosaur because they're always coming up with new rooms and new ways and new things. So, hey, you, you know. were a part of the Electra Voice takeover, by the way. Thank you for coming on for that little short period of time. But yeah, I had to have you back because we got so much more to talk about. Yeah. Well, you, I, you know, even though I was there for Electra Voice, I, I do have to give my kudos to Audio Technica and also. Um, Austrian audio for you uh, came for constantly, me. You came for me constantly being, you know, there for me over the years and uh, giving me all the great audio gear, to, you know, to make me not such an idiot in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Honestly, we appreciate all of our sponsors who've taken care of Absolutely. you and taken care of me. Such a neat, wonderful part of the business and. Well, I thank God for him. I'll tell you that. Absolutely. You and I, let's go back a little bit. Oh. Okay. You and I were, we, we, you played with Prince in a different decade than when I was in the camp. Yeah, yeah. So we I got didn't, there in, I got there in 1996, right when he started putting, you know, a symbol instead of his name and. Right. That whole transition when he left Warner's and the clean house and. There was nobody there, and you know there was you know no real management to speak of. I mean, he still had attorneys and everything, but he started his label, and that's mm-hmm. during the emancipation days. I was there for that three album set, so you know that, that I was enough. He was generous enough to let me play on it, which he didn't have to. It was oh, pretty much cool. finished by the time I got there. It was pretty much finished, and uh, he just kept adding songs and adding songs. I said, "Hey." If you had to play this, what would you do? And, and uh, he ended up letting me go in the studio for a couple of things. Oh, that's great. He really yeah. said Ricky and I were the people that he kicked out of the building. <laughs> so when you came in 96, we were just on our way out. I, I, I think there was just a big changing of the guards. And oh, totally. Ron and I had met Sheila at NAM and then the Mesa in, in Germany, which is like their NAM show. Oh, right. Yep. And we were initially going to be part of an all-female project supergroup that she was trying to put together for Sony, which had nothing to do with him at all. Oh, and wow. then that whole thing happened, and she says, oh, by the way, that promo pack you sent me of all your stuff and you're all playing, I sent it to Prince because he just changed, and now he decides he wants to work with women. So wow. Sheila kind of blindsided us with that. Mm. <laughs> we didn't know anything about it, you know, because it was fresh. It had just happened. And, wow. uh, and she's responsible, you know, for him finding out about us. Well, we'll come back to the whole Prince Cap story, but I just use that as a setup to say that I was there 10 years before you. Absolutely. You came in 96. You were hanging in Minneapolis. We didn't know each other until the Donnie and Marie show. Yes. Which happened a couple of years after that. Yeah. 98. That's right. 98, 99. Yeah. You and I, yeah. uh, Showed up at Sony Pictures. It's like, what? This and you and I became f- super fast friends. Absolutely, that was so fun. What a great period of time we got to play with so many great musicians there too. I mean, guest stars and the band. Yes, I, I, I think the day your mom came and sat in the audience, <laughs> right? And you know, just looking like a mom and. And then came and sat down and just killed everything. 
that was one of the most memorable moments for me. I was unbelievable, man. Your mom. For those of you who don't know, my mom, who passed away six or seven years ago this month, she was one of the best jazz keyboard players in the world. And it was absolutely, we played this trick on people where we'd have her come up, pretend to be this grandma. And she was in her 80s back yeah. then. Yeah. She'd wobble up to the piano, and then people were thinking, oh, isn't that cute? The old lady's going to play a nice church song. And then mom would get up there and just be killing. And I'm all, of course, all our musicians' friends were in on the joke, but the audience just lost their minds exactly. when they heard mama play. <laughs> I was so glad that you got to hang out with her cat. Oh, my gosh. She yes. loved you. And, you know, going to see her at the Beverly Hills Hotel where she would just wreck shop, just, you know, just sit in at the bar there and just play. Her and Hal, right? Yeah, yeah, Hal Atkinson. That's yes. right. That's right. <laughs> but, so, I mean, on Donnie Marie, you and I did some crazy things. Remember the Robert Palmer show when we both put on the leather jackets? and we Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots are on. You looked way better than I did doing that stuff. <laughs> and he Marie, I think, around. got up there, too. He kept turning around looking at us like, what are they doing? <laughs> But then he came up, and rather than saying, you sounded good, what kind of amp is that? I'm like. Uh-huh. He was cool, though. I don't think <laughs> yeah, he died he much after that. I think he oh. passed away like a couple yeah. of years after that. Yeah, he did. Appearance. And Kenny day, Rogers. And, the, and Yeah, and the day Stevie came. Oh. oh. A dream come true for me. Had you ever played with Stevie before Donnie. then? No, oh, I and Donnie, not. too. No, I. Well. Yes, I had. I, 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 we were in Detroit with Prince. Okay. And we went to this after party, and there was a band playing. So if there's a band playing, wherever we are, you know, Prince is going to get up and pretty much, you know, kick them off stage and just do a jam. And um, uh, Tony Rich was there. Uh, Stevie was there. Um, I think Larry Graham was there, too. Mm. And I think when we sat in with them, I think Prince got on drums. <laughs> he was a great drummer. <laughs> you know, and, and we just, you know, we just kind of took over that band's house gig. <laughs> did you really? And Stevie was there. Yes. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think we jammed to like four o'clock in the morning. It was insane. Ooh. You've been so, on the but road. Prior to that, I'd done that with him. Yeah. Yeah. Stevie was, that was an incredible highlight for me. And- Donnie, I mean, the whole band, having Greg Fillingains there, fit, you know, playing a little bit. Absolutely. That was cool. So, so that was an incredible time for you and I. We were hanging every single day, and I just call you my, my California sister. I don't even have to put California in front of it. I've always called you a sis. <laughs> so you, we've adopted you into the Peterson family, you yes. know, the minute we met you. So, yeah, we, we, we love you, Miss Kat Dyson, and it's fun to have oh, you on this. Let's talk a Let's talk a little bit about, um, since this is music on the run, you've been on the road most of your adult life, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you that always true. look great. How the hell do you do that? Um, moderation. Uh, moderation in everything. Moderation in stress. Mm. Moderation in doing 
too much of good or bad things. Mm-hmm. Just moderation and balance. You know, you know, before I get stressed about something, I'll just pick up my guitar. My guitar is my therapist. It is my outlet. It is my stress reducer. It is, even though it also is my work. It also is my focus. It also is my, you know, my bank. My right, instrument true. is many things. Um, and it, it, discipline. I, I, my dad was Army. And uh, my mom passed when I was 11. So I became, you know, his, you know, lieutenant and sister mom and everything else because I'm the eldest of seven. So he kind of put that discipline thing in me without me really knowing that he was kind of, well, you're responsible. So, wow. so sometimes, you know, just having that in my spirit and hearing his voice saying, do everything you can, but do it in moderation, but take care of your body first, because it's the only one you have. So, you know, with that in mind, I have my fun, but I have my chill, but, you know. Just moderation, moderation and balance and, and discipline, I, I guess. That's it for me. To you, uh, well, that's word to the wise, I'll tell you that. I, would, <laughs> I don't even know how to say the word moderation. Yes, you do. <laughs> you know I don't. That's not See, true. See, now, Kat knew me back in my, my drinking days. Oh. You and I had a couple cocktails together, but, you know, yes, I just... You know, I didn't have that moderation word, and so, and I don't have it now because I'm, you know, I'm either going to run no miles or I'm going to run a marathon. I'm either going to have no ice cream or I'm going to have a gallon. I wish that I understood the concept of moderation. I, I'm still young enough to figure it out. Well, if you listen to your body, it will tell you. It will give you the big warning. Don't do that. Warning. Will Robinson, <laughs> warning. Yeah, it will. I mean, it depends on how, um, and I know this sounds crazy, but how body conscious you are because, you know, the body is an amazing creation and it will speak to you if you're listening to that, if you're mm-hmm. intent on crashing it into the wall. Right, right. Do you, have an action, do you have a routine when you're on the road? I mean, you, you've spent so much time recently in Europe, or am yeah. I correct? Was yeah, Zuccaro? yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been working with him uh, off and on for twelve years now. Yeah, um, you know, sleep first of all, sleep, water, those are the maximum things. And I have green days where I'll just you know, and I'm not really a dedicated vegetarian, but I'll have green days where you know I make sure that even my protein comes from something alive and green. Mm. Got to have green days. I mean, you know, as time goes on, you're able to bring the little little bullet machines and the things, the machines and stuff that you can bring and make your own shakes. And if you're, you know, moving around and you're on a bus, at least you could plug in and do some juicing if they don't have it at the venue. But, you know, there's a list of foods um, uh, because uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2008. And, um, besides, you know, living clean and everything else, I then had to really boost my immune system. Um, and that was one of the ways that I'm, knock on wood, still here. Um, 
but I do, so uh, I do try to keep a list of foods that uh, is my go-to list of you need to eat these today or every day because you need to eat things that are going to bring oxygen to your system, that are going to bring nutrients to your system, that are going to bring, okay. So, you know, you're going to have a cocktail or wine or whatever it is you choose to do, but you got to feed your body the good stuff mm-hmm. to be able to handle the not so good stuff or the not so good conditions or, you know, the, the, the constant running and traveling or maybe the sleep deprivation. So, you know, I'm sleep deprived. I drink more water. If I, if I know I'm not going to rest, you know, I try to at least have some quiet time before the show and quiet time after the show. You know, if, if not, I, I, I save a salad until after rather than, you know, doing something destructive after like big, big pizzas and blah, blah, blah. I will save a plate of broccoli and have mm. that broccoli or have that salad. You know, the French eat their raw stuff at the end of the meal, which kind of works for me. You know, so I'll have my salad after my protein, like away from it is a food combining kind of thing. I mean, it's, there's a science to it and a lot of people adhere to it. But uh, when I travel, I try to eat fresh for wherever I am. I don't try to go, I'm an American and I need to eat McDonald's wherever I go because that's the only, that's the only food I know. It's McDonald's. No, I, <laughs> I did that in my 20s. I was like, where am I? Where am I? I don't I? really Where's eat it? McDonald's here. Kentucky so Fried Chicken. I don't really eat a lot of fast food here. So, you know, sure. only when I'm just forced and I'm on the road <clears> and I have to. Um, but I cook so much. So, you know, you are home, a good cook, a great cook. Thank you. Well, being well, you home, are. you know, has reintroduced me to my kitchen in ways that are not so good because then I get in there and I get experiment and I like it. But of course, because I'm from a big family, oh. I don't know how to cook small. So then I end up with lots. So my freezer is full of all these beautiful discoveries and experiments. I'm like, okay, that's good, but that's too much. So let me freeze some of it. So I got good stuff for later. <laughs> right. So you, you're, I hear you saying, if you, you know, if you're going to play, you got to pay by being good to your body. Well, so you balance do. is really an important everything. thing. You're, you're on 11 when you're on stage, but you take time to meditate and, and, and chill absolutely. out absolutely absolutely meditation is you know is 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 key there even if i'm on the bus i am doing it on the bus you know people think yo she's sleeping oh she's about i'm you know centering myself even if i'm on the bus in a bunk i'm centering myself even when people are up and around i'm making quiet space for myself even if i have to put these headphones on yeah put my music on and nobody knows if they think i'm sleeping fine mm, right know, i'm i'm you know, my bunk is always full of books or ipads where i'm reading i'm all <laughs> i'm always doing that kind of thing so i'm 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 pretty boring <laughs> on the road no you're not no you're not uh-uh you lie well you know i i i you know i think i'm boring you know i'm social but you know i'm an i'm an introvert as well so you know and i'm i'm I grew up with a love of books. My mother used to make us read to each other as kids because she's like, uh, seven kids, seven bedtime stories? Nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. So she, she'd trick us, and, and as soon as you learn how to read, then you read to your brother or sister, you know what I mean? But she had us reading Edgar Allan Poe and, and Shakespeare and all the poetic greats and, you know, literature that's literature. She, you know, not 
not the, the boy in the caboose, you know. <laughs> she had us reading things. I mean, when, when Halloween came, she found a recording of Vincent Price's The Raven from, oh. <laughs> from, <laughs> from Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe. So she would play that recording and nobody would come up to our house because, you it's know, too she, scary. We, had to, we had the cat, we had the, you know, jack-o'-lanterns and she, oh, yeah. you know, with the thing, the house looked all, and then you hear, said The Raven. Nevermore. <laughs> he, he, anything. You, you could recite uh, Twinkle, and, and, Twinkle, Little Star and scare the and hell she out would of you. Pl- and she would play that, and the kids would be scared. We were like, well, we know there's candy going to be at our house because nobody's coming up there. Yeah, more candy for me. <laughs> exactly. 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 Kat, do you still work out on the road, or is that something that you don't necessarily do as much of anymore? A- absolutely. I have to because, you know, those 20, 30 town guitars don't get lighter over time. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so I give us an example. I, right? Yeah, I've got a little you know, COVID sitting here. I you realize that the camera cuts me off right here for a reason. I hope you. <laughs> well, I, I saw some, you know, some video footage of myself, and I'm like, oh, I was kind of breathing there, and that doesn't look so good. But yeah, I I have to keep my upper body in shape. I'm not ever in the best shape that I want to be in, but I definitely have to do something, you know, for posture for you know stamina for you know upper body workouts i mean i've even you know i have resistance bands and i usually you know take some free wicks at least with me and i've kind of worked out you you know and in a lot of european hotels a gym is like you know a bike yeah (laughs) and a treadmill (laughs) right you know they're like hotel Jim, why? We're in a hotel to relax, you know, mm-hmm. that's what, you know, especially in the Italian hotels. They're like, right. huh? Um, but I, I've, I've, I've learned to take furniture and just, you know, learn how to do asymmetric stuff to just make your body weight, make you work out. But it's very, very slow. You know, it's not fast because then you don't get any results. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely try. I definitely Got try. Got it. What do you... What do you think is the toughest thing about being on the road? Mm, I mean, it's getting in rhythm to being there. If you don't want to be there, that's another thing. But if you know you're going to be there and you know what it is, you just got to get into the rhythm of being there and the rhythm of what it takes. And it's so different from your at-home rhythm. If you're not able to switch and adapt, it makes people really cranky. But, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm like, and when I get home, I'll have money to buy me time to then do this and get into that rhythm. You know what I mean? So it's a rhythm. It's rhythm balance. Here we go again. So when I get home, then I get a chance to write, um, Hmm. to read, to go to a museum. And I do that when I'm on the road. Sometimes I get up early and if I'm in a city I don't know, I'll go to a museum. Or I'll go to a park or I'll, you know, go and have a coffee where they have a coffee. Or I'll ask the hotel guy, you know, where do you have breakfast on your way here? Where do you go for, you know, I, I, if I want to see the place, I want to see it. I want to feel like I've been there rather than just, you know, if, if I have the time, you sure. know. And, I, you know, I try to visit as much green space. So I try to incorporate a little bit of what I do in this rhythm while I'm there. Um, and, you know, it also helps if you're, you know, and I've been lucky 
uh, to be out on the road with people I love and respect and we all get along and, you know, some people you get closer to than others and, you know, everybody's got their own drama while they're on the road, their own families, their own this, their own that. And you just, you know, you're gentle and open and honest and, and loving with each other. And, you know, with the Italians, we, you know, we had a horn section at one point. He'd take a, a, a George Foreman grill and make the most amazing bruschetta, you know, oh, with the, you know really? the bread with the toppings. He would take that grill and, you know, we'd hit the stage, we'd get off the stage, take our showers, get on the bus, and he'd just be there chopping up stuff, you know. And, you know, one day we, you know, we'd have, you know, uh, a portobello mushrooms bruschetta or this bruschetta, or shrimp with the bruschetta, or, you know, oh, we came up with this, we found that, and we're going to add that to the bruschetta. <laughs> you know, he would just, wow. he would just create. And, you know, those guys cook and they eat, but it's all fresh stuff, you know. And, and over that, you know, some of the Americans dug it, some of them didn't. Me, you know, if we stopped in a, in a region or a town where, okay, this place is known for their salami, they'd get that salami. Or this place is known for their cheese, or this place is known for their olive oil. They'd buy five different olive oils, and they're like, okay, taste that. Now, taste this one. Now, which one is better? They would have more discussions about food. Is that right? <laughs> than they would about politics. They never talked about politics. It's like, what do you mean? We make the best this. No, we make the best that. Take me, please. I don't want to talk about politics <laughs> ever, ever, please. No. So, yeah, I, I have a question for you because you know, and maybe my listeners don't know, I come from a musical family, but of strong men and women. My mother, whom you mentioned earlier, Jeannie Arlen yeah. Peterson, single mom, raising her uh, three boys and two girls after my father passed when he was 48, a musician, having to take care of, you know, I was four, my brother was 10, Patty's 14, Linda mm-hmm. and Billy are out of the house, but being a woman in the music business, how has that journey been for you? Well, I mean, you and I have a similar type of story. My dad was 40 when he was widowed with seven kids. I was 11, and my baby sister was three. Whoa. She's a nurse practitioner now. She's Dr. Maria Holmes. Mm-hmm. She's the superstar. I'm just trying to hang with her. <laughs> I love so, her. So because I was kind of put in a leadership position before I even knew what that meant, um, I, I, I was forced um, to mature m- maybe quicker than most. And I was 5'10 by the time I was 12. So I was playing in clubs at 13 and lying and telling them I was 18. As long as I didn't drink or right. do anything legal, I didn't, you know, I wasn't into drugs or anything like that. So I was able to kind of just do it. I just wanted to play. My mom bought my first guitar and within a year she was gone. So, um, having it in my hand helped me not miss her so much, helped me grieve when I did miss her. And she said, you can do this. You can do whatever you want. I was playing piano. I was, uh, singing in every choir. I was doing all of that stuff while she was alive. So guitar was the fun thing to do because I had to take piano lessons, which for me weren't all that much fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. That's why I'm not a great piano player. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but um, 
so I just wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted, and, you know, I had four brothers, so I was used to the male dynamic. So as long as they saw the guitar before they saw me, I just didn't really, I never, I don't know how to play, put this, but I didn't really put a lot on my sexuality because I was tall, female, but I grew up a tomboy playing all the sports with my brothers because I was pretty much their babysitter. So I played basketball, baseball, you know, you know, it's like, okay, she's one of the Dyson kids, you know. So I was tall and lanky, right. not really buxton or anything to look at, and I just wanted to keep playing, mm. you know. Um, and I really didn't focus so much on, hi, I'm the girl. I was just <laughs> like, hey, fellas. <laughs> I was like, hey, fellas, you know, I can play this part. And, you know, I had a lot of, you know, blowback. A lot of folks would just come up and put their head next to the amp to make sure I was playing. Because in a lot of bands in Virginia, you know, we didn't even have the money to buy keyboards or anything. So most bands had two guitar players. Hmm. And, um, you know, I learned a lot of the keyboard parts. So a lot of stuff on rhythm guitar for our, you know, lead player to float. And then we had some horns and, you know, we all that average white band tower power james brown with the two guitar players you know beatles with the you know multiple guitar players all that two guitar player stuff i kind of learned how to do and people just kind of got used to oh yeah that's that dicing girl and you know like i said i didn't i didn't when i had when i had the bikini body i wasn't really into showing the bikini body because i Hmm. wanted them to see that i could play sure and, you know, I didn't, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm not downplaying or by any means criticizing how, you know, women uh, dress or present their art. I think you should do that according to your personality. But because I was put in that position, you know, my fashion was secondary. And I'm sure you can go back and find some pictures that uh, show that. <laughs> Oh, I'll definitely I, I be really, going back to find those. I, I really, you. you know, I, at that point, I really, I, you know, I was wearing what the band would wear or they would come up with costumes or whatever somebody told me to wear. I was like, okay, I, I couldn't, I, it was so secondary to me. I got to keep playing music. Did you get the, oh, she's a girl. Oh, lots. Okay. But, That's what I'm the, wondering. Well, I'm, but I'm saying I grew up in a house with four brothers telling me all the time, hey, she's a girl. And, we, you know, but I was taller than them. Right. And playing the sports and beating them. Uh. They, <laughs> <laughs> so I was used to that. And I was like, yeah, but I'm a girl, but I'm still hanging with you. Right. But I will still make this shot. Why, you- so they respected you and you found a way in through, through that, through your, obviously through your playing, oh, just yeah. who you were. Yeah, I mean, so it would happen, but are. it would always be a but. And I, it, it, a lot of people would let it stop them, but having four brothers underfoot, because my two sisters were after my four brothers. So it was me, the four brothers, and then my two sisters who were like living baby dolls for me to play with pretty much in age. You're, you're the uh, oldest cat? Yes. Ah, got it. So, so uh, when guys would come up and say that stuff, it would be like, yeah, and... <laughs> I wouldn't mess with you. I got news. Well, no, but I'm saying, you know, my dad and my brothers kind of made me go, yeah, and. Okay. And my dad would always say, don't get mad, baby, get even. Mm. Whatever they say, take it all in. Don't get mad about it. Figure out a way to beat them. And, you know, we play chess and 
And I'm like, Daddy, let's play checkers. He's like, no, no, checkers is for lazy people who are going too fast. I want you to learn how to play chess. Go to long game. Mm. So, you know, whoever would say something like that, or blah, 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 time would always come around where they would have to see me again. It's like, oh, she's still doing that thing. <laughs> so You just kept um, coming like a freight train. Well, you know, my mom was encouraging me from, from above and just saying, hey, you can do this. And when it started to open doors and pay my rent and give me a roof over my head and make it so that I didn't have to ask anybody for anything, you know. Was there ever a point she, where your she, father she said? Set me, she set me up for that, you know. She set mm. me up. Well, my, my father never wanted me to do it. And when she passed, he locked my guitars in his room. That's what I was birth. just about to ask you. Was there and ever a my time? Baby sister, my baby sister was like a little bit of a gymnast when she was young. She used to jump off things and just scares to death. So she yeah. would climb up the back way. There was a big oil tank in the back, and she'd climb up, go through his window, open the door. And I'd take my guitar and go and play the gigs, and he would come, and I'd get in trouble. And Oh, yeah, we fought for many, many years. Interesting. Huh. Until, until I got in a band where the manager would keep my guitar at his house because he knew my dad's. Find no. a way to beat him. Yeah, my dad, my dad, my dad never, he, what father wants his teenage daughter out doing gigs and playing in clubs when he's like working 12, 16 hours, you know, nah. Right. No, but he knew that I wouldn't stop. So, you know. Was there a point where he came around and said, I'm, I'm really proud of you? Yeah, yeah, it took a while. It took a oh, while because he was a jazz guy. So anything I played that was not jazz, first of all, he didn't think it was music. So that was a whole nother situation. Well, that's I a remember, generational thing, though, for sure. Yeah, I remember being young and he's like, this is a guitar player. And he played West Montgomery and I was like 10. I was yeah. like, Dad, that's cheating. That's two guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. So whenever I want to really just bring myself back to square one, I put West Montgomery on. And it, it grounds me, you know, and all the guitars that he loved, you know, because, of course, I was going way the other way. Anybody he didn't like or any, anything that didn't sound like jazz, the louder, the crazier. Mm. Oh, Deep Purple, Hendrix, Stones, anything. He'd have to come home and turn that noise off. <laughs> you know, I've, I've said in other interviews, mom used to call that rangajang music, whatever that means. <laughs> Rangajang, <laughs> smeary guitar music. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then her three sons got in the Steve Miller band, so whatever. There you go. So how but do you hey, transition out of your house being the, the, the uh, eldest or the matriarch, really, at that point? So you, how do you transition out of the house and into gigs? Because I'm sure if... You're the oldest. You must be almost a matriarch taking care of your little brothers and sisters. How did that all transpire where you're moving out? And then how do you get to Montreal from, what was it, Virginia? Is that where you grew up? Yeah. We're going to break away for a second here so I can tell you about a couple really important items. Number one, we have a brand new highlights page on YouTube. We want you to check it out. It's especially made by our intern, Jake Miller, for people who don't have quite enough time to sit through the entire video podcast. 
It's a great way to catch up on some great tidbits of information from all of our guests. You're going to have to search for it, I'm afraid, just simply because we need more subscribers on there in order for us to get a custom URL. But it's Music on the Run Highlights. You know what else is on there, you guys? A brand new feature that we've been doing strictly on Fridays. It's called Funk Friday. Got to have a little funk for your weekend. We feature great musicians, some former guests, some future guests, and it's a little one to two minute vignette of us jamming and funking out. And it's a great way to kick off your weekend. It's called Funk Fridays every Friday. Check it out. It's on the Music on the Run Highlights Reel. And of course, you'll find it on Facebook and Instagram as well. All right, let's get back to the interview. How do you get to Montreal from, what was it, Virginia? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, well, um, I got into college, which is where I met the Wootens. And, Ah. um, you know, I had my own ideas about things. And my dad and I finally had the, the final conflict. And mm-hmm. he pretty much, I don't care if you're on honor roll. I don't care if you're doing this. You're setting a bad example for your brothers and sisters to get out. And he oh. kicked me out. Whoa. Whoa. Came home. Stuff was on the lawn. Locks were changed. Brothers and sisters in the house. He told us not to let you back in. Okay. So he didn't accept any of that until after I was out there and did it on my own. Got my own place. Did my own thing. And then, you know, then he kind of said, okay, Hmm. you're serious about this, you know? And, you know, I guess he just wanted to, you know, if he figured you're going to be that tough and you're going to, you know, challenge me in my own house, I'm I'm still the general. So it it was tough love and all of that. But, uh, uh, you know, when I was in college, I ran into a couple of musicians and we started writing music and playing in bands together. And then we got a call from a bass player friend of theirs who said, Hey, um, I have an investor who's interested in an originals band and, uh, but he's in Canada. And, uh, I had one more year left. I was taking a double major and I had one more year left. And then like, it was a summer and it was like, okay, we got this opportunity as a band. We were a band even while I was in school. And uh, we went up, and the rest was history. Uh, the name of the band was Chukon. We actually won Rock Wars, which was the Canadian Star Search, and then a producer for the CBC sent our winning tape to the people at Star Search, and we went in, and we won that. Wow. <laughs> so you're on your way. Was that the... Big break, I guess, for you at that point. Well, yeah, to get to get out of to get out of Virginia, and uh, you know, even though we'd been playing in bands and playing all over in the Chitlin Circuit and doing clubs and stuff like that, but to get to another country, and because I, I studied classical voice and I also studied music and media, which was a, a music and recording arts type of program, and I was studying jazz, guitar, and classical voice, so I got a chance to, you know, in my opera training i had to learn to sing in all languages because Mm. my vocal teacher was just she went to school with kathleen battle so she was just not having it she's like not only will you sing these songs you will know what it means because you will take the you know the grammar of italian of french of latin you know of german so 
when you sing this phrase, you know exactly what you're saying to know when to accentuate. You'll know what words you're saying, so you just won't be singing it without knowledge. So uh, to end up in Montreal, which was, you know, French, and mm. um, to show up there, with, and we were doing jazz fusion and some covers and stuff, but to get into that, that whole uh, uh, community of musicians who were open and honest and, you know, the French in general, if, if you're passionate about what you're doing, they don't care what language you sing it in, as long as you're giving it something. Mm. And, um, you know, we were all like in a big jam thing together. And, you know, I got the chance to work with Celine Dion when she was like 16, 17. And, wow. you know, all these French-Canadian artists that I worked with, with Norman Bretway and Rock Vazine, who was like, the second coming of Elvis to the young French Canadian girls and to the girls in France. So he was like, you know, the handsome pruner, you know, from Canada. And um, so I got a chance to use all my skills uh, from school. Same thing with Zucchero, uh, because I sang in Italian ah. and he loved the American blues. So he took American blues and did what Johnny Holiday did in French with rock and roll, you know, just Put French lyrics on that American driving music. Um, so uh, that's the kick I get from, you know, working with guys like that. Wow. What an incredible transition from, from home to Montreal, traveling. And then how did you get to Minneapolis via Sheila E? Well, I, I was um, actually um, demonstrating guitars for Godin Guitars, Montreal-based guitar maker Robert Godin. Love them, still play the instruments. They're and fantastic. so do I, thanks to you. So they, you. they, they were the first uh, to ever pay for a full page ad for me in Guitar Player Magazine playing one of their guitars. Wow. Um, and um, I, while in Montreal, I went to a lot of concerts and uh, ended up meeting Felicia Collins and Jan Pulsford, who were out playing with the Thompson Twins. And um, Felicia was like a protege of Nile Rogers. And I would, you know, on the weekends I would get off, I would go from Montreal, take a train, Montreal to New York City, and go and sit in and, and, and sit in the jazz clubs and jam with people. And I met Cindy Blackman, who is now Cindy Blackman Santana, Tracy right. Wormworth, all these girls that play music and do it for a living. Got a chance to meet. So many great people, Hiram Bullock and all those guys mm -hmm. going back and forth. And um, so Godin sent me down to a couple of NAM shows. And this particular, I think it was my third or fourth NAM. I said, hey, I got a friend who plays bass and she'll play your basses. And we'll, you know, we'll have fun and we'll make that stuff look good. And Rhonda came with me and uh, I met Sheila at a NAM show. And then we eventually took what we were doing there and we took it over to Germany to uh, Mesa, and yep. uh, Sheila saw Rhonda and I do our thing and went, hey. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she, she, like I said before, she sent our demo stuff that we sent to her for a different project to Prince. And uh, Rhonda went up and auditioned first, and uh, I was a few weeks after, and we went on from there. Wow. And after... <laughs> I don't want to downplay the, the fact that you were with Prince. What an incredible experience that must have been, yeah? But in between that, and I didn't fill in the gap, oh, yeah. after meeting Felicia, 
Then Felicia was doing all kinds of tours because whenever Nile would produce somebody, Felicia would go out and do the tour because she she knew the sound. They had similar styles. And she was playing with Cindy Lauper. And then she got the call to go to David Letterman. So Cindy was auditioning. Right. I was still in Montreal. I was still married to a Canadian. So I went down and I auditioned and I got the gig. So then I started playing with Cindy. And uh, played with Cindy for a few years. And um, then Cindy said, hey, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to have a baby. And she just got married, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And um, that's when I met Sheila and all of that happened. And, you know, uh, Cindy was like, I love Prince. He and I work together. Go do it. Have some fun, kid. You know, she always calls him kid. And, um, you know, it was it was that I, I I don't know if he had seen me with Cindy. But when I did mention her, he, you know, and I found out years later, they have a love and a respect for each other, which was mm. great. So you spent, what, three years with Prince or is it a little bit more? Yeah. No, that that but that was it. But off and on, like as far as living in Minneapolis, yeah, two 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 years tops, yeah, and um, and then he went in the studio, was doing two or three records, and then I got a you know I got a call from Sheila, and she was doing the Magic Johnson thing, and I was oh, working right. on my own original material, and you know he changed the band, and he decided he wanted to do his own thing. Um, and, and being a, a, a secondary guitar player in his band is a rotational thing. Sometimes he'll need one. Sometimes he won't, you know, mm. when we, you, we parted ways. But then when I started doing Donnie Marie, you know, he would come mm. in town. Yeah. He would show up at the little club dates that I would do and just sit in. <laughs> I was playing somewhere and he, he shows up. He's like, I said, look. Just don't break my guitar because I've seen him throw people's guitars. He's like, oh, no, I won't do that. But I need your shades, too. I, wanna, I want your shades. And you can, <laughs> he would just show up, you know. And uh, we end up eventually, you know, working together again. And, and we did the NAACP award. So, you know, right. it was, you know, we were in touch and, and, and we were cool. I mean, um, and he would invite me. And, you know, so I would say between, you know, 96 and, and 2005, uh, was when I did the uh, NAACP thing with him with uh, mm. that whole big night where he and Oprah got awards. It was a big night. It was a 12-minute medley. I think it was the longest uh, medley of nonstop music on, on network TV ever or something like that. It was something crazy like that. Sounds about right, for sure. <laughs> so after Again. the Donnie Marie show, that came somewhat... At- Close to after the Prince uh, tenure, yeah. is that right? And 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 he would be in he would be in contact with me while I was on the show. Well, you know, I know you're on TV. He was watching. Oh, he was. He huh? That I was there with you. You can That's come funny. to Minneapolis, and I, I fly you right back. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know you. You just get me in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be there, <for> right? <laughs> you know. So he was watching. He was he was checking it out. He was definitely checking it out. When did you start working with Cindy Lauper? Um, I believe that was like 93, 94, something like that. Yeah, 93. Oh, so that was before. Before, yes. Yes. I did not know that. Yes, it was before Prince. So it was whenever, were- whenever, whenever Felicia, Felicia started with Letterman is when I started with Cindy. Because Got she it. left Cindy's band and I auditioned and, and uh, got the gig. Yeah. 
tell me some of the other people that you've been lucky enough to be on the road with? Um, I was out with Natalie Cole for a while. She was absolutely just, just fantastic. I worked with a uh, Canadian guitarist named Colin James. Oh, who's yeah. Like, who's like a Stevie Ray Vaughan double. I mean, he was a kid from Canada and just wrote Stevie and said, hey, I'll come and tech you for free if you just mm. teach me. And, you know, that guy just plays the attack guitar that Stevie Ray played like for years and years and years. And, uh, I mean, I got a chance to work with Ziggy Marley, um, went in the studio with him, also went on the road with him, which was fantastic. I got a chance to meet who I consider my guitar mother, which is Odetta. Um, I was uh, out uh, touring with uh, a Montreal-based gospel choir, Jubilation Gospel Choir. And at one point I, I... I have a solo feature and I'm doing Oh Mary, Don't You Weep with my guitar. And I'm scatting with the guitar doing that. And we're in Halifax doing a sound check and we're in this big church. And, and when, I, when I'm scatting, my eyes are closed and I open up my eyes and there's this woman walking towards me with her arms out. And it turns out to be Odetta now. My mother bought me Odetta records when I was oh. a kid because she wanted me to see someone who looked like me yeah. playing guitar because, yeah. you know, I kept oh. listening to all these rock and roll crazy you know, rock boys and James Brown and all these men. And she's like, well, you know, this woman does what you do. And I got to meet her and, and be her friend. And it was just amazing. Um, I got a chance to work with uh, Kate Pearson from the B-52s and play with the B-52s as well. Wow. Um, I just actually talked to Kate. We're, we're going to be doing something um, for... Uh, the equal rights movement. Uh, we're doing a project in the next few weeks that's going to be out. It's going to be fantastic. Um, uh, so many people, you know, I, I've been lucky. I've been blessed. Uh, you know, I get a good uh, recommendation or I go in and I do audition. I mean, you know, nothing just comes. You, you got to work for what you get. So I, I, I've been extremely blessed. So all these rock stars that you've worked with, what do you think is the, the common thread of success? Do you think there is one with all these guys? Why are they who they are? What do you think are the attributes of, of a rock star? Since we, I mean, you've worked with so many people. Do you think there's a secret to that? I mean, I think that if they're true to their source. Uh, I, I find the ones that last are true to their, their strengths and their weaknesses, and they know what they are. Um, after I did Donnie Marie, um, I did uh, a quick uh, summer kind of pilot season in uh, 2001, right before the 9-11. With, with Wayne Brady, he had a a half an hour show and uh, it was an improvisational show and he had some great musical guests just come on, you know, and different, different, I mean, Luther Vandross came on and did comedy with him. Wow. <laughs> you know, I got to see everyone that. that I've seen that, that works. I mean, I got a chance to play in, in a, in a big blues festival in Europe and I got to meet BB King and, you know, he sat down with me, let me play his guitar. At least I tried because it was set up for a man with a big hand. 
Right. And he said, you know, they want me to come and talk at this college. And I, I didn't even finish high school. And what am I going to tell them? And he's like, I, I have to say a few notes. I said, yeah, but there's what you say with those few notes. You know, everyone, I mean, I got a chance to meet John McLaughlin, Joe Pass. All these guys set me down and just, you know, gave me a lesson, whether they knew it or not. And, and they're in touch with their humanity. I think the guys and the girls, men and the women, the artists that last are in touch with all parts of their humanity. And they're able to convey it to people. And people are able to say, I second that emotion. You know, mm. They give people something that they can feel, hear, touch, sing, breathe, something in the way they said the words, something in the way they deliver it. You know, the feeling, something in the way that get, fed the soul, you know, of the person. You know, none of them have been so above it all that they didn't think that they were, you know, perfect all the time or not flawed. I mean, even Prince, right. he was hard on himself than he was hard on, he, on anybody. You know, everybody can say, oh, he was a taskmaster. He was harder on himself. <laughs> Yeah. Than he was on anybody. The guy wouldn't sleep. The guy wouldn't eat. I had to come in and say, hey, you need to eat something. Hey, you need to drink some water. Hey, you, you need to sleep. And I almost treated him like I treated my brothers. And he was like, okay. Right. <laughs> I had to get into big sister mode. We, yeah, you, know, you weren't afraid of him. I mean, he clown me and joked me. In. But see, like I said, after being around my four brothers who was constant with the teasing, all the little tactics that men use on women kind of don't work <laughs> we have tactics do we no we we don't have tactics yeah i don't all know of what you things, speak Young all the little Kathleen things Dyson. don't work on me because you know i grew up with that right. so i ended up being everybody's sister everybody's big sister See? so I, you know that's yes. fine you know i i like that working environment it you know it makes things easy and simple you know we're just we're just in the backyard plugging in guitars playing it. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Let me take you to what the events that have been happening in Minneapolis and all over the world. Uh, <sighs> I think it's important that we, we, we talk about this because you were instrumental in teaching me a few things. I don't know. Way before <laughs> um any, any any I mean it's always been going on, but it's so prevalent right here, right now. You and I spent two years doing the Donnie Marie show, and we were hanging out day and night like brother and sister. And yeah. you would say, you would say, did you notice that? I'm like, what? Did you see the way that, or what he said? Did you hear what he said? Or whomever. And you would point out situations of racism that totally would go right over my head because I, it wasn't on my radar. At all. And you were the first person to go, you need to be aware of these things. You did it so beautifully and subtly, and, but it was an awakening back in those days um, that I thank you for. That makes me more aware of, 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 of things like that and the injustice. But is that, uh, how do we move forward here? Uh, I, I, this has got to be an incredibly horrible time well it is horrible the horrible part is that it's continuing and 
there's an educator, I think her name is Jane Elliott, who said and who did experiments at least 30, 40 years ago. Racism is taught. You don't grow up. It's not in your DNA. And there are a lot of people that will say that. But, you know, racial bias is taught. Social bias is taught. I'm rich. He's poor. He'll always be under your foot. Right. You're better than him because we got a bigger house. Kids hear you say that stuff. It goes into their programming. They're little computers. Yeah. What I loved about your family, and I could tell from the moment I met you, even in, you're not even noticing the subtle forms of racism, you were not taught that. Your mom and your dad did not teach you that. And there are many people that I've met that are just like you. And I'm not suggesting that you're clueless or anything. You were not taught that. So the seeds of that were never, the the insidious seeds of the one-upmanship of that were not put into your spirit. You guys were more concerned with, I got to be a Peterson and be excellent at music and kill everybody else to stand on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true. And you being the baby, you became good at all the instruments. Because you were the little one, so you're going to overachieve everybody. You just play drum, bass, guitar, keyboards, blah, blah, blah. Everything. I told you, I don't know what the you word just, moderation. You watched everybody do it. And as a baby, you overexcel, And that was your focus. But there are families and there are people who exist who feel the totality of their existence is intention upon them feeling like they can keep somebody underneath them. And that's classism, all the isms. Mm. All the isms are built pretty much on that same thing. So all of these things, regardless to whether people want to cop to it or not, with your actions and your mannerisms and the things you say, you are teaching your children these unconscious biases that they have. Right. And growing up in Virginia, being you know, looked upon, frowned upon, judged with, without a word being said, my father would tell us, and he would show us pictures of when he was in the army and when he was in Europe and all these people that he met and the beautiful things and how big the world really is. And he's like, don't let people judge you by the way you look. Let them judge you by the way you act. Mm. And he would never tell us, hate this guy because he's this. Hate this guy because he's going to treat you like this. Hate this guy. He's like, make sure that your house is in order. And you're treating them the way you want to be treated. And once you do that, you've done your part. Right. Then protect yourself and keep yourself safe. So he didn't teach us hate at all. He just mm. taught us because, you know, we grew up a black Catholic family in a Bible Belt state of Virginia, right. going to church every week with nuns in a predominantly white congregation. Singing and practicing in Latin. <laughs> Still in Latin back in those days? Yes, sir. Yes, we had the singing nuns with the guitars and everything. Come oh, yeah. on now. I did <coughs> oh, yeah. Too. oh, yeah. 12 years oh, yeah. Catholic we, school. Oh, yeah. We, we, we had, so we were the oddballs in our own family. You know, 
you know, mass would last 45 minutes. We'd be home an hour and, you know, our aunties would look at me, you know, the great, great aunts. Of, That's not enough. Jesus. What are y'all home? Y'all home? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good quote. That's not enough. Yeah. Jesus. That's not enough. Jesus. The only, you know, we'd be home. Y'all still in church. Yay. You yeah. know, we'd be home playing. Right. And they were like in church for hours. So, um, it, you know, racism, like I said, some people feel like it's their heritage, it's the heritage, it's their legacy, it's their, you know, you know, the daughters of the Confederacy felt like they had to glamorize and, you know, make statues and monuments to their men who were out fighting the wars. And all of that glamour and glitz to cover up the grisly ugliness of war got put in the history books as the only truth. And it just completely ignored a race of people that were you know, treated for better sense of the word, a, a third human being, which, you know, yeah. was even in our constitution. So, you know, we, we've got a, 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 a part of the public, a part of the population that, you know, legalized and, and legislated the, the inequality. That is some case, To, to make themselves, that- no, to make themselves not feel guilty. Well, let's write down that they're a third of a person so that when we treat them like that, hey, it's the law. Well, let's say they're, equal, let's say they're created equal but separate so we can separate them and then we can give them less. And it's the law. Mm. Um, let's free them and let's add some amendments to the Constitution uh, and let's see how that goes. And oh, they're doing too good. Uh, let's take some of them back because it's the law. And then you got Jim Crow and you got the take back. You got the give and then you got the take back. And they legislated everything. And there are a lot of people go, well, you know, that's just the way it is. And, you know, you're, you're equal, but you're separate. So you got to be over there because uh, it's the law. Right. You know, and it's still. Right now, the Legal Rights Act is still not enacted. And it's That's just, it's, it's, it's unfathomable. And, 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 and if the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment were right. really the law of the land, then there shouldn't have to have been any other laws written. There right. shouldn't have to have been anything else written. But it was done by lawyers who gave themselves enough wiggle room to say, separate but equal, hmm. one-third of this and a well, you kind of can't do that. Oh, we gave it to you, but now that you did it, we, you know, there were thriving, separate but equal black communities that created their own wealth, their own commerce, their own infrastructure, and they were burned to the ground. Yes, these, they were. These, these neighborhoods were bombed, burned to the ground. We hated that you did. It's, it's almost like a jealous lover. It's like, Okay, I'm going to divorce you, but don't do better with somebody else when you leave me. I mean, and I feel like this country is now in the throes of yet another divorce, and they would rather burn the country down than to see her do better without them. Yeah. And that's what's happening. And the young kids are, are my parents, putting their bodies in harm's way. Right. You know, they're standing in front of guns, and police officers would. You know, these fake bullets that they say won't put people's eyes out and won't, mm. won't, won't, won't harm you, but there's hundreds of people in the hospital. And, you know what I mean? So it went from dogs and 
water water blast to, you know, tear gas and, you know, steal the billy stick, and, you know. <laughs> Three miles and, from my house, I might add. You know, I mean, the police yeah. are not soldiers. I mean, I come from an Army family, an Army. I have cousins who are in the Marines. You know, the military and the police are two different things. And the minute you militarize the police, that's not, the police are there to protect and serve. Yeah. The military are there to defend the country. They are soldiers. What they know how to do is point and shoot. That's two different things. They're not dealing with the public. They're dealing with the enemy. But the right. police being militarized are treating the public as if they're enemies. As if anybody that doesn't look like them are enemies. And they're not diverse enough to have police that actually look like the neighborhoods help to police them. So they're very simple fixes that can be done. But it will require equality. And we were back at that same place. You know, we're back. Well, you had Obama. Well, Obama came in and changed pretty much policy-wise. Before, while he, before he could even finish his first dance with his wife at the inauguration ball, you know, McConnell was like, we're going to stop him. Anything he wants to do, it's going to be finished. He's not going to get another term. He's not going to pass another bill. The guy brags about the 200-plus bills that are still sitting on his desk that he's mm. sitting on to. Yeah. You know, so all the people that say, oh, he didn't do anything. Oh, he couldn't. <laughs> right. Well, when you come in like this and say, okay, uh, can you pick up that glass of water and eat some food? <laughs> right. So, how, do we I mean, t- how do we turn this? How can we? Let, I don't know how to turn it around. How can we as a human race make an well, impact? Well, we have, and, to, we have to pick our leaders wisely. Ah. And, not, and not just with protocol. Mm-hmm. We, have to pick, we have to pick a leader that actually wants to serve the public. Right. Not somebody that wants to be deified. I heard there you. are a lot of people who come off with a good game, but they have no intentions of serving anybody but themselves, but themselves and the people that pay for them to get there. And there are a lot of leaders worldwide that are in that little box. Mm-hmm. And those guys know that if democracy and votes and all these things if they can't dismantle the system, which they're trying, they're done. Yeah. And leaders that actually care about people are they going to be the ones, you know, and we just have to pick them wisely. Look at the total picture instead of their bubble. See, yeah. a lot of people create bubbles for themselves to insulate themselves from the things that are unpleasant. But, you know, if you got a gun wound, you, you can't keep putting a Band-Aid on it. You're right. You're going to bleed to death. You know, racism is our gun war. It has been oozing and bleeding and oozing and bleeding. And we've been, you know, cleaning around and, you know, not taking the bullet out, but putting, and it's festering, festering, festering. At some yeah. point, we got to take the bullet out. We got to clean out the wound. Right. It's a messy, uncomfortable ouch. And it's happening. And it yeah. keeps, and it keeps happening. And there's some people that would just rather lose an arm than take the bullet out of their arm. They'd just rather you cut the arm off than going through the, oh, I got to dig that thing out. And, you know, there, there are some people that, you know, it's just like people who, who are against change. 
change is going to happen. Yeah, you know, with a rock outside you. on the ground is not the same rock that it was yesterday. Right. <laughs> God changes everything every minute. <laughs> wouldn't be, wouldn't it be something, Cat, if if this terrible tragedy turned into an opportunity for us to be better to each other. Well, it is. It is, by and large. It is. But the media doesn't make money showing that it's changing things for the better. They make money with the controversy. I would pay money to have a news channel that actually took the time to send Mm -hmm. their reporters out to find out the good and broadcast that. That's easy. That's great. That's crazy talk. Broadcast that for 24 hours and it would be on. Yeah. Keep the, let the ticker tape of the stuff that's, you know, that's going on that we can't change. Let it, right. let it roll. I don't want to hear you say it. I can read it. Mm-hmm. But show me visuals yeah. of people that are getting through this, of people yeah. that, are, that are coming out of this better, of people that are, 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 are raising themselves and, and changing the way they think. And opening themselves up to, ooh, I only saw the selective amnesia picture that I was given. Yeah, yeah. Where racism wasn't all that bad and they were happy slaves. <laughs> oh. You know what I appreciate, though, is that, you know, I've been, I grew up playing black music, so did my entire family. Um, I don't know if I've ever had a the conversations I'm having now with my black brothers and sisters. I, I mean, when we'd be in a gig, it's like, all right, I'll take the first course. You take the second course. It wasn't about what's going on in, in our country. I, there was never an, a call for that. You did have the conversation because you played the music. You played the music with the same feeling that it was given. So you were part of the conversation without even knowing it. That you gave the music that much respect. Mm. Understand that. Understand that. You're going to make me cry right here in my I mean, podcast. Bob James, Bob James put up a, a post. Did you see that Bob oh, James Oh, did post? I ever. Drop me too. Black Lives Matter to me. And there are people that, you know, don't want to see things change. They, they need to feel validated knowing somebody is doing absolutely better, worse than them. And there's no way being black you can get out of that, no matter what you do. I mean, look at that gentleman in Central Park. Guy was from Princeton. Asked the woman to just put your leash on a dog so I can watch the birds. Yeah. You know, she gets on the phone and says, I'm going to tell them that an African-American man is threatening my life. Well, she's being sued. Right. I mean, that type of attitude is the same thing that got Emmett Till bludgeoned and beaten to death. Yeah. We got to figure this out, sister. No, well, the more, you know, the more you turn the light on. Yes. Truth that's in the dark. That's That's, what you do. That's what you do. You have to see. I'm going to say something now that, you know, has been unpopular in every conversation I've had. I say keep all those monuments up. Just change the plaque, the information plaque that's by those. Keep them all up. Don't tear them down because they're going to tear them down. They're going to put them in a museum and create another false narrative as to what those statues really mean. Keep them up. Just tell the whole truth. Besides every statue that's got to do with that Confederate period. Yeah. Here lies this guy. 
he did that for the war, but he was also part of slavery. And he also did this and this and this to mm. this amount of people. Mm. Tell the whole truth. Got I don't it. mind. I don't mind. Wow, that's let brilliant. Him stay, let him stay up. Just tell the whole truth. Don't glamorize it with a few little phrases. Change the narrative. The guy, yeah. Educate. See, you know, everybody wants to tear him down and not see him. And the young kids, oh, we just don't want to see him. I said, well, you're being lazy because you need to learn the whole story. And not having any reminders, ah. you're allowing the people that are going to take those statues and put them in another museum somewhere and tell the story they want to tell and go, those people don't know what they're saying. These are the glory guys and these are the glory days and this mm. is the glory this. And I'm like, you know, to the, to the victor go the spoils. To the victor also goes the writing of history. Mm. Keep them up. Just tell the truth. I have never heard that idea, and that is Yeah, but, brilliant. you know, there are a lot of people that are like, you are they don't, crazy. They don't like that. I'm like, uh-uh. Well, that's why we have I, you know, opinions. I want, I want the, but I want, I want the pride and the shame. Mm. You feel mm. pride about that? You feel like that was part of your pride? Well, this is the other side of that pride was another person's misery, and you should feel that shame, too. Mm. Wow. You know, anybody who's come up in this country who has generational wealth has benefited in some way from 400 years of free slave labor. If your great great granddaddy left somebody some money, who left somebody some money, who left somebody some money, some of that money came from somebody that looked like me who was underfoot who worked for free. Right. Sure. I mean, that's logical. And downtrodden to the edge of their lives. Pulled up, treated like animals. You know, they'll go, oh, you're not a slave. You've never been a slave. You know, I'm like, slavery was legislated after it was abolished. Right. With right. Jim Crow laws, with red line, with right. voter rights. With yep. the, you know, it's, it's, it's continuing. It's just more insidious. So, so, so please don't tell me that because literally, yes, slavery is still enforced. Because the separate but equal kept it open mm. for interpretation. So it was put in there. Just enough wiggle room. Yeah. You know, if, if a drop of water drops, drops, drops on a rock 400 years, guess what? That rock is going to give. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I don't so, mean to get off the subject, but, you know. You no, I'm, I, I asked. <laughs> I, and I think it's important that we show what communication is, too. People got to talk. People got to talk. talk. Absolutely. And I don't claim to have all the answers, but to me, and what my dad always stressed to us, even as kids, you know, when you tell that little lie, he's like, telling half the truth is just lying anyway. It's just a lie. <laughs> you, you know, you don't tell the whole truth. You lie to somebody, mm. you know. Tell the whole truth. The whole truth will serve you better. Right. Well, he, he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. He also was not in politics. And, and, and you get in trouble because somebody's going to find out the whole truth and you're still going to be in trouble. You know, when right. my brothers would do something and then uh, he didn't do that. I did that. You know, and then somebody's going to tell. <laughs> mm. Here we are right now. Somebody's telling. If, 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 if I say nothing to young people, search for the whole truth. Not just what you've been told. Don't be satisfied to that. I mean, there are books that we had 
for Virginia history that they don't use anymore. They're under glass in a library in Richmond. And I remember them because they were proud of certain things. Mm. Like the real framework of the Ku Klux Klan was put together by, you know, certain politicians who would put hoods on their heads because they didn't want to be recognized having these secret meetings in Spotsylvania County, Virginia. Right. Oof. Not down in Mississippi, not down in Alabama. It was the politicians and the lawyers that put the framework together. Right. If we start havoc, if we start fear, we can still keep these people subdued. That's a whole nother podcast. Nah. You know. It is. We we could we could have my, my good friend Jonathan Butler from from South Africa. Yeah. Jonathan. Who could tell you many, many things about that. And it's same idea. Dutch, you know, same idea. Psychological warfare, you know, fear. Right. You know, making examples of people doing violent things to people. Fears it fears it. Uh, an incredible motivator. Subjugation, in a, un- 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 you know, unfortunate all these things. Way. When yes. you feel like you are physically outnumbered, you have to use your mind to inflict control, you know, but that's a whole other thing. It is. But yeah, I, you know, I, that's why I read. That's why I'm always looking. That's why I'm always searching. You know, somebody tells me something. If I can't find six sources that give that, then I'm wondering, what's the rest of the story? But I've always been curious like that. As yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a I have a storage that I just pared down to two to just get books. Does <laughs> it? <laughs> just books. Ah. And now that I have my iPad, God, I have two iPads. It's just books I'm reading. <laughs> Luckily, the iPad that'll save on some space for you. Yeah, the iPads keep the page. Oh yeah, you were at that page. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm gonna be respectful of your time. What are, What are you up to for 2021? Because I know 2020. It's probably you know touring wise uh, a wash. Yeah, it's 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 looking like a wash, but you know there's always hope, and you know I'm hearing my fr- from my friends in England. They're doing these drive-in concerts where people are in their cars, and the band plays, and there's big screens, and yep. they got the little speaker, and you know they're thinking of trying to do it like that, and outdoor festivals, perhaps. You know, right. you know, I mean, there are a lot of things that are being, but. You know, um, right now, uh, the Zuccaro Tour, if you go to Zuccaro.it, the dates are being rebooked and rescheduled to start around April uh, 2021. And until then, I'll do my best to stay busy and keep out of trouble and not enjoy my own cooking too much. Uh, <laughs> and, and keep the resistance and, bands and, going, play yeah, some little bit of golf. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, golf is a, is a great way to get out and you're still social, but you're still far enough away and, you know, you still get the sun on your face. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm playing better, but at least I'm trying to get out there and, and do it as often as I can. And if I get a chance to see friends while I'm out there, that's always a plus. So, right. you, know, you know, maybe, you know, once they get this whole airlines thing down, I'll make my way to Minnesota. We can go out to one of those level courses. Your room awaits. I'll try not to lose too many balls in the lake over there. <laughs> I haven't played all year. You're going to whoop my you butt. You haven't played all year? I haven't played all year. No. I don't believe you. I, I'm just telling you, I, I haven't played you. all year. 
It's beautiful in Minneapolis right now. Come it's on. It's 90 degrees in Minneapolis, and I've been sitting down here in my studio <laughs> making music, and we need to make some music together. By the way, I got to tell shall. everybody, Auntie Cat has been looking out for my kid, Taylor. Hey, whose don't tell is tomorrow. everybody. Don't no, tell everybody. you're so sweet. I mean, it, it, the first thing that Cat said when Taylor, my daughter, moved out there is, now you tell her to call me. <laughs> she reached out, and I cannot thank you enough for always being willing to take care of my, my oh. little kid. Oh, my God. Well, she's not a little kid. That's a very talented oh, and amazing artist. Uh, yeah, listeners, is. don't let Papa just make her sound like she's like two years old. Well, she's she is to me. A woman and singing her tail off. That's she right. Is. I said it. She I said it. Writing, producing, singing, oh, yeah. doing everything just like her daddy did. Come on. Mm, He's a Peterson. She is. Kat, thank you so much. I love you. And, thank uh, you. I appreciate you just sharing an hour with us. And I can't wait to see you and play music with you again as soon as possible. Absolutely, me too. All right. Hey, everybody. Give my best to everyone. Okay, absolutely. That's it for episode 17 of Music on the Run. That was Cat Dyson. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razo. Video editing by Ivan Sebastianov. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember... Wear the damn mask. <laughs>